Hey, I'm Jesse. This is Devotion 139. We're in Acts 23, beginning in verse 23. He summoned two of his centurions and said, Get 200 soldiers ready with 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at 9 tonight. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. He wrote the following letter. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. When this man had been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned that he is a Roman citizen. Wanting to know the charge they were accusing him of, I brought him down before their Sanhedrin. I found out that the accusations were concerning questions of their law and that there was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there was a plot against the man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered his accusers to state their case against him in your presence. So the soldiers took Paul during the night and brought him to Antipatris where, uh, uh, as they were ordered. The next day they returned to the barracks, allowing the cavalry to go on with him. When these men entered Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. After he read it, he asked what province he was from. When he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing whenever your accusers also get here. He ordered that he be kept under guard in Herod's palace. So Luke is the author of the book of Acts. And in chapters 16 through 18, we saw something interesting happen. He kind of weighed in on the action. There's never a record of Luke himself leading the way and recording a sermon that's, that, that's preserved in the book of Acts, for example. Luke was just sort of in the background. And you, you can never count out the quiet guys. All right, You're all, we're all gonna work for the quiet guys one day. Luke was the dude keeping track of all of this, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, collecting it into this letter to a dude named Theophilus, if you recall from the very beginning of the book of Acts. And in chapter 16 through 18, Luke began to add his own autobiographical contributions, and including his own voice among those pleading with Paul not to go to Jerusalem, because exactly what is happening was what they feared would happen. Paul knew this was coming, though. He knew that what awaited him in Jerusalem and that eventually Rome was just chains from prison and eventual death. Do you remember the, the prophet Agabus who came forward and took Paul's belt and bound himself with it and say, in this way, the man who owns this belt will be, will be chained and must suffer for the gospel. This was, this is all coming to fruition. Now Luke has recorded a letter. It is entirely possible that he writes it according to Paul's recollection or that he had heard it read in front of Felix and Paul in Caesarea. So he's just recounted this letter that follows a traditional structure. If you'd, re if you'd remember from our previous devotion, Paul's nephew caught on to a plot of some 40 men who were going to ambush Paul. They ostensibly wanted to investigate more, uh, more intimately the, the, the detailed accusations against Paul, but really they just wanted to kill him. So Paul's nephew gives the word to the commander. The commander then takes Paul and then takes the following action. And as a result, Paul is now in Herod the Great's palace. You can see how God has orchestrated all of this to bring Paul eventually face to face with Caesar. That was a Roman citizen's right. A Roman citizen carried with him the full weight of Rome and people were afraid to do anything to hurt a Roman citizen because the Roman citizen had rights. Now, this Roman citizen is also gonna evoke his right to stand before Caesar. That's gonna take him face to face with Nero. All of this makes sense when you remember chapter 16 through 19 and, and Paul's willingness to go face his own death. Now here it is, 
we finally see in this letter the mechanics of what would bring Paul face to face eventually with Caesar himself. Now we've still got some other trials to go go through before that. We're going to see Felix in the next chapter, for example. But this is what this is what eventually precipitated that. This letter gives Paul protection under Rome. And it's a good thing he stood up for his Roman rights. It's a good thing that before he was, uh, when he was about to be scourged, that he brought up the fact that he was a Roman citizen, not as though he had purchased it, but that he had inherited his Roman citizenship. Because it's by that Roman citizenship that he is now being protected from the Jews by none other than Rome. Now, granted, eventually it would be Rome who kills him. Rome personified, if you will, by Nero, the highest emperor in the land. Nonetheless, for the time being, this is how all of those prophecies of Paul's coming death are coming to pass. And in the meantime, this is how he's going to eventually get to Rome. It began as prophecy, and now we see the sheer mechanics of it. It began as an ethereal concept. It was even vague to Paul until he encountered Agabus. Now it's becoming clear. Paul is consistent throughout the book of Acts with what he describes in Romans. What he describes in Romans under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is largely ethereal and philosophical in nature. It's one big, giant, exquisite theological work explaining God's role in electing Israel so that now because of Jesus, Gentiles can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. What he describes in philosophical terms in Romans, he lives out in very practical nuts and bolts terms here in Acts. This letter, it doesn't get any more practical than this. It even recounts the letter according to a traditional Roman structure. Paul is consistent. You can see that he is a Dodge salesman who drives a Dodge. What he talks about in Romans, he lives out in Acts. His boldness, his insist upon, insistence upon his rights as a Roman have all set the stage for this. God is sovereign even over this. Were it not for that band of 40 Jews who had taken a vow not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul, this may not have happened. He may not have been accompanied by Commander Lystra all the way to uh, eventually to Rome. If it, if it were not for that band who took a vow, by the way, I bet they're still hungry now because Paul's not going to die for a few more years at this point. Were it not for all of that, Paul would not be where he was. It's, it's remarkable we as Christians can really confuse God's will for like comfort and ease. That's not always God's will. Your emotional state, your financial state, your even your physical state and your health, these are, these are nowhere listed in scripture as, as determinants as to whether or not you're in the will of God. You could vaguely make a case in James chapter five that there's some illness that, bring, that, that is brought on by sin, but that's it. Rather, when I look at the book of Acts, I see a man after God's own heart doing God's will, hearing vaguely